Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Hey everyone, it is summer, and I mean summer with a capital S because I am covered in mosquito bites for the first time, and that to me is what it means to officially be in summer, so welcome. One of the things I really like to do as I record these intros is to really consider all my listeners and where they might be as they listen to this podcast. I know that when I'm listening to podcasts, I'm often out for a walk or fixing fences or making a meal in my kitchen or maybe running to town on an errand. And I like to imagine where you all might be. I get such an incredible chance to intimately connect with my guests through this podcast, but I haven't yet found a medium to intimately connect with my audience, with you guys. And that's really something that I am trying to find a good solution for because it's really, it's really important to me that we connect. My podcast today is a really exciting one. I know I say that every time and I mean it every time. I got to sit down with Beth Lipton, who just finished writing a cookbook, Carnivore-ish, with her partner in crime, Ashley Van Houten. And it was really special to sit down with Beth, not only because she had just interviewed me for something the week prior, but because I think that she has a really interesting voice to bring into the conversation around meat and to explore meat's role in our diet and maybe at the center of our plate to explore meat's role in a women's diet, as well as to explore the way that meat is being portrayed in the media. And this element of the conversation is something that I am very interested in, and this won't be the last conversation that we'll have about this. I have been a butcher for over a decade and working in regenerative agriculture for over 12 years. And so I have gotten to see the conversation that's happening around meat in the media and in the food journalism sphere unfold over and change and shift and maybe devolve a little bit over the last decade. And I am really curious to really begin to unpack what's happening and why we've begun to vilify meat. And one of my first stops is always to look at this through a historical lens. And Beth and I get into this a little bit in the podcast, but it's important to look at the historical precedent for vilifying a food group that has been important to humanity's evolution and important to our diets for time immemorial. And I think the first time that we really see this within a historical context is with the vilification of saturated fat in the Ansel Keys area of the seven countries studies study, which was 
arguably cherry picking data and <laughs> taking a, a very fast and loose look at saturated fats role in cardiovascular disease. And you can read about this in Gary Taub's The Case Against Sugar and Nina Teicholz's The Big Fat Surprise. But looking at the way that the seven countries study was introduced and how it really took off within the mainstream narrative and within the American household is vitally important when we consider the narrative that's being crafted around meat. And I think anybody that works in this industry knows that there are an increasing number of articles that are portraying meat without really doing a lot of due diligence into all of the different aspects of this, whether it's greenhouse gases. I know a lot of them still quote uh, livestock's long shadow, which was a UN study that actually ended up retracting the numbers that they put forth, which were that 18% of greenhouse gas emissions were caused by the livestock industry. It turns out that wasn't true. Or they're looking at plant-based meats and they're not looking at them through the lens of how they're packed with seed oils or the impact of monocultures, some of which we're going to talk about in a solo episode that's coming up. Or they just don't seem to have the full basis of their opinion. And I recently wrote something on Instagram that I'm going to read here because I think it really sums up how this opinion that hasn't really been considered so often by writers in this field gets repeated ad nauseum. And what that means when we're looking at what is a very nutrient-dense and important food in the human diet. So this is, this is from me. So much of this conversation leads me back to this. We must start coming to our own conclusions. These little rips and tears and rents in the fabric of the reputation of meat and many other topics are largely unintentional at the level of the writer or the individual. These writers of these articles aren't considering the issues and really asking themselves what they think about it. They're parroting an oft-repeated narrative instead. And then the next person that writes the next something repeats that narrative again without even noticing or examining the subtle programming that got them there because they're not aware of it. Nor have they researched their stance on an opinion they don't even remember forming, probably because it was slipped to them by something that is slowly amassing a following of people that also can't recall forming the opinion, an opinion for themselves. How often are we doing this? At what cost? Become a free thinker. The alternative is far too expensive. And so with that, I want to give you two of my favorite tools when I'm reading anything to just sort of begin to assess my own opinion of it. And the first is what I call the evolutionary biology sniff test. I look at human history and how we evolved and if it's a dietary recommendation or if <laughs> it's a sometimes even a medical or pharmaceutical recommendation, I look at, well, how did we evolve and in what setting? And how does this line up when I put it through that sniff test? 
And I think meat is a really interesting and in some ways fairly simple one to put through this sniff test. The other sniff test that I love is the who stands to profit and gain from this sniff test. And I think that one reveals a a lot of bad actors, as they say. I think that much of this conversation that's happening in the bigger arena around meat has an end goal and a purpose, and I do think that it will begin to escalate. And I think that's why I view it as so important to begin to look at this and to begin to talk about this at, at the level of this podcast and, you know, within the, the greater community of meat and farming and health, because all of these things are so deeply and intimately connected. And I think that Beth is going to shed some light that I think only she could in this conversation. And I'm really excited for you to hear it. As usual, We have a little bit of accounting to do before we continue on with our podcast. If you're new here, you may not know that every week I read a review that's been left on the podcast. And in return, if you send me your email address to my Instagram or to kate at groundworkcollective.com, I will send you a piece of snail mail. And this to me feels like such a perfect way for us to connect in the real and tangible world, which is very important to me. And I will say a lot of you have been leaving really nice reviews and not sending me your address. And I love the altruism, but I I truly want to connect with you in this way. So please send me your addresses. This week's review is from Meet Musings, and it's titled What I've Been Waiting For. Kate and her guests bring an authentic, wise, and soul-bending humanity to us all with these conversations. I have butchered, biked, walked, drove, and reflected while listening, and have let the words sink into my thoughts and feelings and imagination. I love the long format. It allows a natural flow that ebbs with grace and depth. Kate is an amazing human, and I am so grateful she has taken the time and energy to put this into the world. Meet Musings, I can't tell you how much this review meant to me. I felt so seen in some of the things that are so important to me about this podcast and that they resonated with you just warmed my heart. So thank you so much for this genuine review. Please send me your address. On one last note, I want to remind everybody that if they're looking for meat right near home, that they can use our service, nearhome.groundworkcollective.com, where we have a database of over 2,000 regenerative farmers across the United States that have amazing meat with a set of filters that mean that you can tailor it to be exactly what you are looking for in raising practices or certifications or even species. And so this is such an incredible tool. And as you're listening to this podcast and you pick up Beth's cookbook and you're thinking to yourself, gosh, I just want to pair this with some amazing meat that's in my regional ecosystem. Well, we have the tool for you. And so that's nearhome.groundworkcollective.com. And now without further ado, Beth Lipton. Do you want to introduce yourself? I've noticed that one of the things I've been doing on this podcast is not properly introducing people. And the other part piece of this is I think that nobody can introduce you like you. You have 
the best scope of what it means to be you. So do you want to introduce yourself to everybody? Sure. I'm Beth. (laughs) Hi, everybody. Um, I am a recipe developer and I write about food and wellness. Yeah, that's that's me. Fantastic. (laughs) And you have a new book out. I do. Yes. It's called Carnivore-ish, written with my very good friend, Ashley Van Houten, who many of you might know as the Muscle Maven. And it's all about how and why to emphasize animal protein in your eating style. And it's beautiful. You sent me a copy and I've been combing through it this last week and I'm really in love with it as just a, it's just a really beautiful book. And so highly recommended. I'm so curious about how you arrived at Carnivore-ish. So you have this beautiful book, but I know that you've had a career of freelance writing and in recipe development prior to this. And so I'm just curious to hear a little bit more about your story and how you arrived at the space of wanting to explore meat and health and just your journey. Yeah, you know, I'm sure like many people is kind of a long and winding road and not much. It's one of those things where like, I always laugh when people say they have something like a five year plan, because I've always just kind of like followed the wind a little bit. But I studied journalism in school and had plans to work as a writer and reporter. And I did that for a little while. And I was working at a wire service in LA, and it just wasn't for me. And I kind of left that and was waiting tables and just kind of floundering. And I took a baking class just for fun. And the teacher took me aside one night and said, you know, have you ever thought about doing this professionally? Cause you're kind of good at it. And it had honestly never occurred to me because it was, you know, it was before there was any such thing as like celebrity chefs or the food network or anything like that. So I didn't know anybody who cooked professionally. I didn't really, I never really thought about that as a career. But the next thing I know, I went to culinary school and I studied pastry um, and it was like classic, you know, French pastry. And I cooked for a while and um, hotels and restaurants and stuff. And I really liked it, but I, I couldn't see myself doing it in the long term. I felt like, you know, am I really going to be doing this job in 25, 30 years? And I found that it was very much focused on one side of the brain, the creative side. And as much as I love that, I, I was really missing the other side. So I went back into journalism and I did all, I covered all sorts of different subjects. I didn't know at the time that there was such a thing as a food editor. I didn't know at the time there was such a thing as a test kitchen. So I just sort of dove back into journalism and I worked in magazines, which had always been my ambition. And I covered all kinds of subjects, travel and tech and music and all kinds of things. And several years, I worked at People Magazine. um, And then years later, I ended up at Hearst at a women's, it was a startup weekly women's service magazine, which is no longer around. But the editor-in-chief was sending me all the the food stories to cover because I was the only one who had a food background. And at one point, she said, well, I guess we should hire a food editor. And I was like, what about me? So she said, okay, you're the food editor. And that was 16 years ago. And so ever since then, my work has been at this sort of intersection of food and journalism. And I've had the privilege and opportunity to develop recipes and also write about food. And because I was always interested in health just on my own and interested in healthy cooking, my work kind of led me slowly that way, even though personally I was always interested in health. 
And eventually I ended up at a monthly magazine called All You, which is also not around anymore. And then I was the food director at Health Magazine. And back then, for me, health meant something much more traditional than it does now. You know, I minimized eating meat. I was a vegetarian for, for years. Yeah, and so even when I. I went back, right and, right. and even when I went back to meat eating, it was like a once in a while thing as like a treat and never something I, I focused on at all. I ended up going back to culinary school. I went to a, a health supportive culinary school in New York that is very much focused on, it's not strictly vegetarian or vegan, but it is, can, it, it does sort of lean that way. And I immersed myself in that. And then about seven or eight years ago, I did an elimination diet. I always had like bad stomach problems my whole life, never really diagnosed for anything. I had an ulcer when I was in my twenties, but beyond that, I never, I just always had trouble with my stomach. And then about seven or eight years ago, I did what at the time was called a whole foods cleanse. Um, you know, juice <laughs> cleanses were, <laughs> yeah. the juice cleanses were big at that time. And there was no way I was doing that, but it was, it was essentially an elimination diet. And I found, I wasn't really expecting much because I was already a healthy eater in my mind. And I went through this elimination diet, eliminated a lot of the sort of common triggers for people's stomach issues, you know, grains and dairy and legumes and all that kind of stuff. And I couldn't believe what happened. I mean, first of all, in 48 hours, all of my stomach problems were cured, uh, absolutely cured. And I'm already kind of an annoyingly energetic person. And I felt like the energizer bunny. Like if you just put me outside, I could just run around all day. And it was really eye-opening. And ever since then, I started trying to figure out what, what that was about. So I continued on that journey. I, I went, you know, what used to be called paleo and eliminated legumes and most grains from my diet and limited dairy. I was already not eating that. I was already not really eating that much sugar. And it just kind of evolved from there. And when I met Ashley, I was already starting down this path of just noticing that when I ate more meat and more animal products, I felt better. And just by virtue of getting rid of like the pastas and grains and all that, I found, I just found myself kind of gradually heading that way. And through, through my friendship with Ashley and through my work and having the privilege of interviewing people like yourself just over time, it kind of turned into, I started to really recognize how much better I felt when I put meat at the center of my plate, animal protein at the center of my plate. And then Ashley and I had been wanting to do a project together really since we met and carnivora, she wrote a book uh, the year before about organ meats called it takes guts. And then we were talking about doing a book together and carnivora was just the most natural evolution for both of us. I want to dive into carnivorish, but I hadn't heard your whole story and I want to go back a little bit. I'm so interested. I feel like you were really there on these parallel tracks of the rise of both food being a real driver of pop culture and, and food publications. I think that we are obsessed with a food, with food now in a way that we were not 16 years ago. And mm -hmm. in that same vein, you saw the rise and the adjustment of health from that sort of traditional view of health that I think we both might've shared 15 years ago where it's, it's vegetarian and through the health literature and into the space of meat. And I'm just curious how you view the evolution of those two tracks, because I think this conversation around meat is very popular right now. But I also think that 
food journalism has never been more popular and the celebrity culture around food. No, I think you're exactly right. And I never really thought about it that way. But yeah, I guess I was sort of like a Forrest Gump character kind of very much on the sidelines, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I do, I think that, I think that meat is, it's interesting because the way it's covered right now, you would think that a lot more people are vegetarian and vegan than they actually are. Absolutely. And the mainstream press is very, and I consider myself part of that, is very much focused on plant-based eating. But that's not really the way most people eat. And I'm not saying most people are carnivorous because they aren't, but, or at least not yet. <laughs> but, <laughs> but most people do eat meat. So I feel like, you know, it's, it's not always easy being sort of an, an outlier and, and wanting to write about, wanting to write about meat and wanting to write about including meat as part of a healthy diet. Like it's really hard to sell those stories. And, and certainly Ashley and I have bumped up against, you know, we're definitely swimming upstream trying to get coverage for the, for our book. But I, I do think that there is, well, there's definitely a need for it. And there's also, I think a desire for it. I mean, the people that we the, the people that we have in mind are the ones who want to eat meat, but think that they shouldn't or that they're not supposed mm. to. So we're not trying to change anyone's mind in the sense that like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to argue with somebody on social media who's vegan and no. tell them they're wrong. Like, I'm no. not going to do that because it's not for me to tell them that. No, but I think there are That's a their lot journey. Of, right. Exactly. But I think there are a lot of people, especially women who would feel better and do feel better when they eat meat, but they get these messages that it's wrong or unethical or bad for them. And so they, they turn away from what they, they turn away from what they feel inherently in their bodies and they do what, what they're sort of told to do and it doesn't serve them. So that's really, that's kind of, it's not the only reason we wrote the book, but I definitely have those women in mind very much. So I know Ashley does too. I think that, and, and this was something I wanted to get into, and since it's here, I think that there is this big mainstream push to get away from meat. I, I think especially within the food journalism community and just within the media as a whole. And you said something that I think is really important, that while this is really being that there's this perception that more people are vegetarian or vegan than there actually are, and that most of us eat some, you know, are on a spectrum of meat eating from quite a lot. I know that I eat quite a lot of meat and I eat a carnivorous mm -hmm. diet to, you know, fairly regularly eating meat. And I'm curious how you view the narrative. And you said something specific too at how it's geared towards women. And I'd like to unpack that a little bit as well. Yeah. I mean, that's something, it's certainly something Ashley and I talk about frequently, which is that, you know, women are, women are given this message and it's all over the place, certainly in advertising. I mean, we always joke about like the picture of the woman holding the flavored yogurt and laughing or like yes. the two women, you know, eating salads and laughing. And we definitely, definitely observe that there are a lot of messages about you know, what is or is not feminine to eat. Mm -hmm. And, and in fact, when we were talking to our publisher about, about this book before we wrote it, 
we talked about how if you look for cookbooks around meat, most of them are, there's a dude on the cover. They're like by men for men, you know, there's like a dude on the cover. The way it's designed is very sort of masculine. And I, I I'm using these terms. I'm sort of throwing them around, but you know what I mean? Like it's true. They, it's, it's true. Not that, like, and, I mean, not- there's a stereotype there and, and there's mm-hmm. marketing to a stereotype and within sort of a paradigm really. Right. So we wanted this book to appeal, not, not strictly to women, but we wanted to make sure that it was comfortable for women. And we really, both of us are really focused on making sure that we do what we can to kind of cut through this narrative. Because the fact is that women Women, in my opinion, really need and would benefit from meat in their diets. She, Ashley and I are at very different stages kind of in our lives and in our health. And so I think that speaks to the power of eating animal protein when you're her age and you've just had a baby and when you're my age and you're in perimenopause, like, uh, and certainly during development. I mean, there there have been studies. Yes. You know, there's been studies Multiple on children. Studies. Yeah. So that's. I mean, both in pregnancy and in growing mm-hmm. children. But then you, but then you look at the 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 journalism and the media messages around what women should eat when they're pregnant, and it's like you look at the list that you get from the doctor about what protein sources you should be eating, and it's like peanut butter, quinoa, and it's like th- there's nothing wrong with eating those foods inherently, but like. You, you're growing a human. Like you, yeah. you, need you need the most nutrient dense food you can get. And that's meat. I mean, that's just a fact. So it's always going to be meat and you need mm-hmm. the building blocks for life as you mm-hmm. foster life. Mm-hmm. And as you were talking, I'm curious what your perspective is. I think we've, there's a mainstream narrative out there that has worked to sort of break women from their intuition around their bodies. Because I do think that we have an intuitive drive to eat these nutrient-dense foods, to nourish our bodies in, in every phase of life. And we've been decoupled from that intuition through the way that we perceive I don't know, social mores even. Well, I think that's true. And it's true even, even more broadly than that. I mean, if you look at things as, as basic as our hunger cues, I mean, you ever watch a child, like a small child eat, it's amazing. Like one night that child will sit down to dinner with you and eat two bites and they're done. And the next night they'll sit down and they'll eat their dinner and your dinner and whatever else you give them. And they're not self-conscious about it and they don't think about it. They just do it because that's what their bodies tell them to do. And what do we do as parents? We say, oh no, just one more bite on that night that they eat two bites. And then they go to school and they're told what time to eat. And they're, if they're eating, you know, if they're given food, they're told how much to eat. So we socialize that right out of them. And then if you talk about the genders, then yeah, food is definitely gendered. What is or is not masculine or feminine to eat? So I feel like the, you know, by the time you get to adulthood, how are you supposed to have held on to any sort of intuition around your body when so much of that has just, you know, been sort of socialized out of you or, or, you know, media messaged away from you. So a lot of our work as women now has to be both for ourselves and our daughters. If you're like me and you're lucky enough to have a daughter 
how do we how do we foster and celebrate that intuition, which is the thing. I mean, nature is smart, right? Your intuition is there to teach you what you really need. So when I was going through the elimination diet, for example, it was at a time when I wasn't eating much meat and I, all I wanted was meat, like all I I wanted. And the elimination diet was, was run by a dietitian. And I called her and I was like, what's going on? Like, all I want is meat. I don't know what to do. Like, what should I do? And she was like, uh, eat meat, <laughs> you eat, meat. eat as much. Yeah. She was like, eat as much meat as you want. And I never felt better. So, but I had to have, somebody had to give me permission. Yeah. So we're hoping, you know, Ashley and I are hoping this book will give people permission to do yeah. what they need to do for themselves. How do we, how do we do this? How do we reconnect with that intuition? As you were talking, I thought about two different things. I thought about the early Greeks actually observed that sheep before they went into labor would go and drink seawater, that salt is such a boon for lactation. And farmers know this now that the sheep would go and and get this extra salty water so they could get those minerals and that sodium content up so that they could increase their ability for lactation. And you see this, you see a drop in fertility associated with sodium intake, like with reduced sodium intake in ruminants and in pigs as a farmer. And you see an increase in their ability to sustain a bigger litter or to have more access to milk when you they have free access to sodium. And this is something that they're selecting. And I was also thinking about, there's a beautiful book called Nourished or Nourishment by Fred Provenza. And he talks about running goats in New Mexico and their ability to self-select beyond any any ability of science to select for them the minerals that they need on a daily basis by eating different parts of plants and leaves and roots and even soil. And so that intuition, while I think that we have been disconnected from it, it is so inherent, it is so baked in that I, I have to believe that we can reconnect to that and that we can heal this generational trauma and allow our children to not be disconnected from it. And I'm curious how you think we do that. How do we reconnect? Well, that's so interesting. And I, I'm just imagining how much insight you must get into humanity in your work as a farmer, just watching animals do what they do without, that's incredible. Yeah. I mean, they haven't, there's no programming and to see that blank slate that is, it's just all, it's pure intuition. It's pure being. You know, it's funny. I, I, I always tell my daughter this story when when I was, you know, 14 months pregnant with her, just like any minute now, she's coming. Um, I all I had this like strong desire to eat pineapple, and like so much so that I was like, I would stand in front of the open fridge with like big pieces of pineapple. I just couldn't get enough. And it wasn't until much later that I learned that pineapple has some sort of enzyme in it that softens the cervix. So this is my body like getting me ready for uh, for childbirth. But at the time, all I knew was like, just don't get between me and the freaking pineapple. <laughs> yeah. But to answer your question about how we, how we sort of get past this, this issue around not 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 paying attention to our own intuition and also teaching our children to do that. I mean, I don't know if there's a 
a broad strokes way to do it, or if it is something that we have to do individually with our families. And for those of us without children to do it, to by, just to do it by example, because we all have children in our lives, whether we're parents or not. So um, you can, you can absolutely model behavior and influence children without them being your children. So I think as much as, as much as we can do it ourselves, and it's not easy, I don't mean to make it sound like it is, but as much as we can do it ourselves and encourage our children and the children in our lives to, to do it themselves and celebrate when they do, I I think that's going to be the thing. And it's going to be a slow process, just like it took us a long time to get here. It's going to take us a long time to get out of it. I agree. And I think some of it just starts by having conversations like these and just opening up this idea that there is a disconnect that's happening between us and listening to our bodies. And it is work to heal that. And it is good work. And I I really do believe that when we start to heal the individual, we in some way begin to heal the collective too. And so that the individual's work and the work of a mother with her children is just as important as it coming from, you know, I mean, what we've seen in the past is that it comes kind of from the top down from society and from what we read and from what we, what we digest that isn't food, right? Like all of the, all of the other things that we're taking in from our environment, but that Mm -hmm. it can also work from the bottom up that just us working to find that connection again is enough. Yeah. I I think you're, I think you're right. I think you're onto something and you know, the other, the other thing is like, I, I always hear, there's always these messages about like, well, children should eat what we eat and you shouldn't make them something different. And so setting aside that not everybody has time to cook separate meals for their kids and setting aside the, the financial aspect, because obviously not everyone has the privilege of choosing what to cook all the time. I, I feel like there's a lot of pressure around that. And like your kids have to eat exactly what you eat. And, you know, my daughter eats very differently from how I eat. And I don't judge her for that. It her what she needs, what her body needs is different from what my body needs. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If your kids eat what you eat, that's great. But we have to stop shaming people who do cook something different for their kids for whatever reason. Absolutely. And I think that you said it before, we're all at different phases of our life and our bodies are going to need different things in those different seasons. And our kids are are definitively not in the same season as us. I think that's really beautiful. And I think that's that's really important for everyone to hear. I want to go back to something that you mentioned about that it's been, that there have been maybe some hurdles or difficulties in getting carnivorish out there because of the prevailing narrative around meat and and getting articles picked up. I mean, you have this this passion and this beautiful breadth of knowledge around meat. How do you how do you work for people to recognize maybe a different conversation around meat? And I see this. I see that the conversation is very much about that it's destructive, that it's extractive, that it's causing greenhouse gas emissions, and it's causing all of these health problems. But there's this other that I think the listeners of this podcast will be really familiar with, this whole other view of regenerative agriculture and regenerative health through meat. 
And I guess my question, I mean, what has that been like for you? And how do we begin to shift the conversation to move the dial a little bit? Well, I mean, I think we're trying to move the dial a little bit just by writing a book like this, knowing full well that it was going to be an uphill battle getting coverage. I mean, we, we walked into the sides wide open. And I think you're exactly right that, you know, there is this, there's sort of two separate conversations happening in parallel about the same subject. And I, I imagine, I imagine it must be incredibly frustrating for you because you really understand farming. And I feel like a lot of things I, I don't claim, I live in Brooklyn. I don't claim to know about farming. I mean, I have written about it and I have had the privilege of speaking to farmers, but it's not part of my day-to-day life. But I know enough to know that a lot of the stuff I read and a lot of the stuff people say about, you know, meat eating being extractive and bad for the environment and all that. I know enough to know that it's, uh, as Diana Rogers says, it's not the cow, it's the how. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so, and that, and that just giving up meat is really not the answer. It's certainly not the answer to health and it's really not the answer for environmental concerns. So I think you know, we're having, as I said, we're having these two separate conversations in parallel. There's this sort of very mainstream conversation about how, what are the ways in which we can all give up meat and how can we cut back on it um, and eat more plant-based and, you know, meatless Mondays and all that kind of stuff. And then over here, you know, where we are sort of our community, there's the conversation about like, how do we get people to understand that regenerative agriculture is really the only answer? And it doesn't matter whether or not you eat meat that, no. um, you know, there are destructive farming practices for all crops, no matter yes. what they are. So I feel like the, the best thing to do is to sort of take the hit in the sense that like, I mean, I'm the only one out of many of my friends who feels the way that I do about, about eating meat and about the environment and what, what steps are actually going to help the environment. And I walk the walk, like I, you know, belong to a local farm share and I get most of my meat from there and it's all regenerative farms. They're all local. They're all Northeast farms. Um, so I do what I can. And I also, you know, try to write stories like the one I wrote where I met you and, So um, Ashley and I wrote this book. I mean, I think all we can do is sort of like chip slowly away at the narrative and like, just try every time you hear someone kind of giving the conventional wisdom to respectfully and, and kindly try to correct the misinformation. There's also something to keep in mind is that there are also very powerful people who have invested money in making things like lab grown meat and making things like, you know, the, the sort of fake meat alternatives. So along with just the conversation and along with the media messages, there are also these very powerful financial forces. And I don't mean to sound like it's a conspiracy theory, but like, that's just the reality that there are reality. There is money to be made in getting people to eat that kind of stuff. So it, you know, just recognize that it's an uphill battle, but I've, I very much try to approach every conversation with kindness and not to be, not to like shout in people's faces. You're wrong about this. And I don't always succeed. Sometimes I lose my temper. Sometimes I lose my cool. It happens, especially when people 
when people are, you know, people say things like, well, you know, that I don't care about the environment or I don't care about the planet or about animals. I mean, it's just so off base, but, but as much as we can be calm and rational and present the facts as we know them to be, I think that's kind of all we can do. I think you said this so beautifully because you started this off with there are these sort of these two parallel tracks. And I think the goal here is how do we begin to reach across these tracks and have a conversation that they have to kind of begin to weave in and out and that these conversations has to have to happen through that lens of, of kindness and grace and humility and just showing up with, these are the facts as I know them, because I think that there are two tracks of facts and that in and of itself is, uh, is, something that has to be overcome. And so what has to happen is instead of just running in parallel, we do have to cross streams. We have to begin to have conversations. And that's the only way that I think that we can begin to flesh out all of the ideas is through discourse. Definitely. And, you know, you know, one thing that Ashley and I have talked about a lot is that, you know, we named our book Carnivore-ish. It would be a whole lot easier to sell a book called Carnivore. You know, it's much easier to give people a set of rules and to give people a a dogma and to be really strict about it and to get, you know, it's just much easier to sell that because it's much easier to do that. It's much easier for me to tell you to just eat meat than it is for me to tell you to make meat the center of your plate, because then I have to explain what I mean by that. Um, If I say just eat meat, you know exactly what I'm saying. So with carnivore-ish, that is kind of, it wasn't the only reason we wrote the book, but one of the reasons is to kind of attempt to reach across the aisle a little bit into, and I don't mean to sound political, but like to, to just reach, reach over a little bit and say, Hey, like there's a way to do this where you're still eating vegetables. You're still, you know, you're, you're having this really varied diet. And we tried to address things like the environment in the book, given that we, neither one of us have expertise in that area. So we, we cited people who do have expertise. And in the book, we, we created a dialogue for what to say when people confront you about what you're eating, because that's something that we have dealt with and that we know other people have dealt with. What do you do when your sister tells you, you know, you're killing your family by eating meat or, you know, what you're doing is terrible for the environment. Basically, how do you answer that question? So we tried to provide that as well. So this, the book is kind of like one way, and I don't mean to say it in like a salesy way, but I do think it it is a tool. It is a tool to help people who want to, want to engage and want to sort of reach out to people and want to have those conversations. I hope that there are resources in the book that will help people to be able to do that. I think there are beautiful resources, and I think you you touched on something that sort of connects the two conversations we've been having, because I think that diet culture has become incredibly dogmatic and very binary. You know, you're vegan, you're carnivore, we need rules, we need a container, we need to know exactly, you know, how many macros am I eating, and lost this thread of intuitive eating that just involves food from your environment and listening to that. It's not all this or none of that, that there's this spectrum in between that most of us are going to want to exist in. Mm-hmm. And that, the, and, yeah. And even your, even your individual, you as an individual will, will sort of 
walk that spectrum. There are going to be days. I mean, I know I experienced this. There are days when I look back on the day and I realized I didn't eat anything but animal protein. Yeah. I just, and it wasn't, I didn't decide to do it. I just did it. And then there are other days where I realized, oh, I really didn't, I really didn't eat that much meat today for one reason or another. And most days it falls somewhere in between. So even you as an, as an individual person will find yourself, you let yourself, will find yourself kind of walking that line all over the place. And that's okay. I think it's beautiful. I think it's perfect. And I've noticed too, it being out here, being on the farm, there's a circannual, you know, we have a circadian rhythm. We also have a circannual rhythm. So there's a yearly rhythm often to what, what my body needs, depending on the season and what's going on. And I eat a lot of fruit in the summer, especially towards the end of summer. And in January and February, I mostly just want meat. And I think that there is a reflection of both what's going on in our bodies and how we're relating to our environment on a daily or seasonal or yearly basis or whatever season of life we're in. You know, what you just said is such an important point about the circannual rhythm. And it is really something that is completely stripped away from us when we are far away from our food environment and far away from where our food grows. Um, and I say that not with judgment because I am someone like that. I have to seek it out. But for, I think for most people, they don't recognize either. They don't recognize that sort of rhythm where they may eat more fruit in the summer and, you know, heartier foods in the winter and that sort of thing. But again, it's socialized right out of us. You know, all you see in media is like, you know, recipes and writing and stuff that sort of pulls you away from that style of eating. Yeah. Um, but we that live in a perpetual summer. Our... I call yes. this perpetual summer, uh, yes. whether it's our air conditioned houses or grocery stores or food publications and what, what recipes are trending at any given time. Perpetual. Every summer. time I open, I say this as a food journalist, every time I open a magazine and I see blueberries and it's like February, I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's just, to me, it feels so wrong to be, to be touting foods out of season, you know, to be sort of like displaying that as a thing that we should, you know, because people do pick up those cues. So even, even in like the world of low carb and things like that, which is beneficial to certainly large parts of the population that really need that, Absolutely. but letting yourself, even if you're a low carb kind of person, letting yourself have more fruit in the summer, because that's where your instinct is driving you. Like, again, that's just such a, it's such an important thing and such a gift, you know, yeah. if you're able to live the way you do, like much closer to where your food comes from. And it's driven by metabolism. Our metabolism is linked to seasonal changes and temperature changes. And I think uh, what you said that blueberries appear, you know, in January or February, we've lost this sort of cyclicality of life. I think a lot about this that and you see a shift from cyclical thinking, which mimics nature because everything in nature is a cycle, into much more linear thinking around the time of Rene Descartes and Newton. You see this, this shift in the 1600s, 1700s, it mirrors also the mathematics of the time, away from nature. And one of the questions I'm constantly asking is, no matter where we are, whether we're in Brooklyn or if we're you know, on a farm in upstate New York or if we're more equatorial, wherever we are, I'm curious how we 
shift back into connecting a little bit more to that cyclicality. And I think it's that same piece of connecting back with our intuition of our bodies, because our bodies know that cyclicality. They're governed by nature. They, it never stopped just because we view it as separate. And so there's so much wisdom there. We just have to be quiet enough to listen. Oh, you're, you're totally right about that. And I think about how many stories I wrote early in my career, in my food journalism career, about you know this nutrient or that nutrient as opposed to food as a whole. And I still see that I'm, you know, I'm guilty of it. And I still see it out there just like eat this food because it has more of this nutrient. And it's like completely missing the point. And I think we see that in the wellness community too, with the rise of supplements, we see this hyper focusing on something like zinc or something like vitamin C without seeing what that whole picture might look like and how zinc might antagonize something like copper. And that whole foods really are perfect, right? An oyster has the exact ratio of zinc and copper and selenium that your body needs, as opposed to just hyper-focusing on these, these parts. And this really, I think this is part of a reductionist society too. And, and I mean, whether it's our medical model where you have a, you have a heart guy and a GI guy and never the two shall meet, And we see that in the nutrient world when the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. A hundred percent. And, and honestly, like that was part of why my, my personal, like my stomach issues were never helped when I was young because I went to a few specialists. So did I. And no one ever asked me what I ate ever. Not one. I mean, literally one of them said to me, well, kid, you have a bad stomach. Yeah. Like that was his diagnosis. (laughs) So, so I didn't mention this. I grew up with stomach issues too, my whole life. I mean, I mean, just debilitating when I was a kid and nobody, nobody ever suggests that I try not eating gluten or try not eating any particular food. And nobody asked what I was eating. Just a total disconnect. Yep. And it's interesting now, I think as functional medicine has become more fashionable and more it's I think becoming more mainstream although it's obviously not available to everyone since it's not covered by insurance but just that just just the ability to look through that lens of like not trying to fix things from the outside in and not trying to just tamp down you know symptoms but trying to look at the system as a whole and saying you know what's what's really going on here I hope that you know people find relief more relief from their health problems sooner by looking at the whole. And, you know, what you said about food and about nature being perfect. I mean, if you look at where we went wrong, I mean, we've gone wrong in many places, but like <laughs> one thing I think of, cause I grew up, you know, in the, in the eighties is like, you know, the low fat, low fat craze and how, I mean, looking at it now, it seems so stupid at the time. It, it I don't know why, but it made sense, but looking at it now, it's like nature made these foods in this very specific, particular way. And we as unbelievably arrogant human beings think, no, no, we can do it better. Yeah. We can (laughs) re-engineer this. Right. So what do we do? We take the fat out of all of these foods that that are made with fat in them. And we replace it with sugar sugar and chemicals but even like you you have to replace it with something because it doesn't taste as good exactly like 
how did none of us look at this and say something is wrong here? Like, Ooh, I mean, that's a, I think that's a deep question too, though. Have you read either Nina Teicholz's The Big Fat Surprise or Gary Taub's The Case Against Sugar, which I think both, both look at that meteoric rise coming out of, honestly, Ansel Keys and the seven countries study and this, this epidemiological study of diet that vilified fat, that fat was this, this link to cardiovascular disease that was, speculative at best, um, and at worst cherry picked data, but it was really picked up in the media. I mean, the covers of time magazine that feature Ansel keys and these frowny face eggs and bacon, this, Mm -hmm. this disconnect. And we see from there the meteoric rise of sugar, which I think actually brings us back in many ways to a conversation about money. Because mm-hmm. I think what it truly was, was if we're manufacturing all of this food, then all of that money is flowing through corporations to, you know, conglomerates and individuals. And it's out of the sort of decentralized nature of farming. Because I think of that farming is a decentralization of our food system. But when we centralize it, when it has to be manufactured, because that's the only way that you can take fat out of something like yogurt that inherently has fat in it, and then somebody can own that thing. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. A lot of it does come back to money and greed and, you know, I mean, I... I I mean, there was, you know, that there was a whole scandal about scientists at, I think it was at Harvard, who took money from Coca-Cola to yes. not say that sugar was, it was Harvard, right? It to was not Harvard. Say, yeah, to not say that sugar was bad. So I think it goes on, it goes on all over. But, you know, it's just, I, I think it, it makes it even more important to focus on what you mentioned <laughs> earlier, which is how we get back to our intuition. Because... Once you remove things like, you know, sugar addiction, which is a real thing. And once you, once you remove the sort of top layer of messaging and all of that, when it gets right down to what we really want and need, it comes back to that intuition. I mean, I think once you, like when I was on that elimination diet and I was craving meat, like you, I just, once you strip away all the sort of outside noise, what you get to is your body saying, this is what I need. And it's never going to be Twinkies. It's never going to be alcohol. It's never going to be these things that right now we're driven to because our sleep is off and, um, and we're, we're depressed and we're anxious and, you know, we're eating foods that are, uh, not don't exist in nature. And all of that just leads us completely off the path. And, uh, you know, it just becomes this sort of soup of, you know, medications and manufactured food and, and it all kind of powers this engine of, it does. There's a positive, there's a positive feedback loop there. And I think that, and I think that in many ways, a lot of the lab based meat and plant based impossible burgers mirror that conversation with how we went away from fat. Um, with even the, you know, the biggest investors in plant based meat are Cargill, which is we associate with CAFOs and animal feeding operations and Bill Gates, which we won't get into that. But all of these things, I agree with you. When we strip that away, when we strip away the noise and we just listen, 
then we can start to find answers. And, and I think you mentioned two other important pieces. We have to be sleeping for this. Mm-hmm. We have to be getting adequate night's rest to, to fuel and repair our bodies and to bring that in. And I think that alcohol is also an important part of the conversation, a complex one, but an important one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it's all part and parcel of the same thing, right? People trying to heal themselves and medicate themselves against, you know, against the stress. And um, like I said, it becomes this cycle of like, you're not sleeping. So then, you know, maybe you drink at night to help you fall asleep, but like that ruins your sleep. And, you know, maybe it's to deal with your anxiety, which is worsened, you know, by not enough sleep and the you know, there's like the loneliness factor that people, you know, is epidemic right now. So all of these things go against what, you know, our sort of ancestral patterns set up for us, you know, human beings are social creatures. So if we don't, you know, our lives depended on it. So now when we experience loneliness, we have a physical stress response and, you know, not getting enough sleep, you know, the next day, yes, you are definitely going to be craving junk food and sugar and carbs because, your body needs that quick energy that it didn't get. And your willpower you know, you, is decreased. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're the, the part of your brain that seeks rewards and, um, exec, you know, executive function is blunted. I mean, so many things. Yeah. And then people blame themselves and think that they don't have willpower. And it's like, it's like, no, this is biology. It's just your biology. There's nothing, you don't have like a moral failing because you're craving donuts after you didn't sleep well. Like that's your body driving you that way. Yeah, that's your, that's your body's wisdom of trying to create energy where it doesn't feel like it has any. And I think that in all the things that you mentioned, I think that there's just an epidemic of disconnection. We're not connected to a community. We're not connected to food. We're not connected to a circadian rhythm that allows us better access to sleep. And I know that part of my work personally for my health has just been to seek deeper connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I hope one of the things that's coming out of the pandemic is people recognizing that they need that connection, that it's, it's really not, you know, the sort of, we've glamorized the sort of lone wolf character, but that that's really not how human beings thrive. So that's, I mean, I hope that's one of, if there is a silver lining, that that's one of them. That we, we start to recognize how much we need each other and that it's okay to need each other. It doesn't make you a weak person. It makes you a strong person. And then once you start there, you start with like these very basic, very, very basic things, connection to each other, getting enough sleep, you know, being hydrated, like all of these things that are, that are not sexy, they're not glamorous, but they are the things that are going to, that are going to help you live the life that you want to live. I mean, it's, it really comes down to that. Like, yeah, drinking enough water can be one of the differences between having a good life and not having a good life. And that sounds crazy to say it, but it's true. It's It's really true. They're just these little spaces where, you strengthen connection and you strengthen connection to your health too. That's really important. One thing, I'm going to pivot just a little bit, that I think that you do so beautifully in all of your work. You know, I read through a lot of your recipes, both in carnivore-ish, but outside of it too, is strengthening a connection to cooking. And I, I really want to dive into this because 
I think that cooking is one of the, oftentimes one of the biggest hurdles to health that we feel like it's too complicated, that it's too hard. It takes too much time. And something I saw as a thread through all of your recipes was accessibility and an approach with a certain amount of levity and, and fun involved and possibility that anybody can do this and they're all delicious and beautiful and nourishing, but they're simple. So I want to, I want to talk about cooking. Well, thank you. That, I mean, you just paid me the highest compliment you could possibly pay me. Cause I do think that, I do think that my, my, job and my role is to, I always say it's to take the ugh out of healthy cooking. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Um, On every level, like, you know, to make it delicious and nourishing, but also to make it fun and to make it not expensive and not difficult. You know, you mentioned earlier sort of the rise of food personalities and food on television and, you know, food being sort of like a character in the stories that we tell. And in a way it's been a great thing because there's all this tension on food, but in a way I also think it's a little bit of a problem because everybody thinks that their, everything they cook has to be like Instagram worthy and that there has to be something special about it. And there's all this pressure I agree. I call this making things too chefy. It's the Thomas yes. Keller effect that you have to blanch your celery before you add it to your chicken soup. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not accessible. It's ridiculous. It's too chefy. I hate it. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. I totally agree. And I feel like if I can if I can have one little tiny influence on people to just not worry so much then that to me is success. I really want people to not just cook more because it's good for them and their families, but also cook more because they like it. Cook more because it's fun and because it it gives you a sense of accomplishment, especially every time someone says, I can't cook, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm, like that, I'm like that French chef in Ratatouille who's like, anyone could cook. Like that's, I'm, I am totally that person. There is absolutely, I say this all the time, there is absolutely nothing special about me. Nothing. If I can do it, you can do it. I mean, I'm a, I'm a good cook because I've practiced a lot and I've just done it over and over and over again. But there is, there, there isn't a single skill that I possess as a cook that anybody else couldn't develop for themselves. So, and there are people like that. I mean, Thomas Keller's a genius. Like some of the stuff he comes up with is remarkable. Um, and there's a time and a place for that. There is. And it's not, it's not 6 PM when you have a family to feed. It is not. It just, it just isn't. I mean, that's an amazing thing to be able to go and experience a meal like that and to see the kind of like magic that a chef like that can do with food. It's incredible. But at 6 p.m. on a Wednesday, like you need to get dinner on the table. You just don't have to worry about those sort of acrobatics. You can just cook a steak and some asparagus and you're done Um, or some scrambled eggs. I don't want to negate that there's magic in that, too. That there is, there is magic in the, the four hour meal that unfolds at a place like the French laundry. But there is also magic that unfolds in the 25 minute harried meal you put together on Wednesday night so that you can feed your family. There, there's magic there too. You're a hundred percent right. You're a hundred percent right. And if you ask people what their favorite meal is or what their favorite meal was growing up, invariably it's something that a parent or a grandparent cooked for them. It's not 
the birthday meal at whatever restaurant, invariably that person will say, my, my grandma made this or my dad made that. And that's what, that's what they love. I wrote a book about peaches, a little like mini digest size cookbook. It was a company called short stacks. And that was a, they asked me a question. They asked me that question for, um, for media, like, you know, what was like one of your favorite things eating growing up? And I talked about how my mother, when I was a little kid, my mother used to make me fried eggs and she, I don't know, she, I don't know how she did it. If she basted the eggs or what, but they were sunny side out, but they had like really crispy edges. Mm -hmm. So the white part was like super crisp and, and cooked well. And the yolk was still like, it, the yolk was like just the right amount of runny. Mm -hmm. It was just like you're saying, it was magical, but it was a fried egg. You know, it wasn't, there, there wasn't anything fancy about it. So I think, I think what you're saying is true. And the other thing to remember, the other thing that makes home cooking magical is love. Yes. Because love comes through in food. Absolutely. And that's why you can go to someone's grandparents' house and have the best meal of your life. And you can go to a fancy restaurant and leave cold. And it doesn't mean that you always will do those things. Sometimes you go to an amazing restaurant and you leave feeling all filled up, but like the love that or comes you go through. get pizza afterwards. That's my recollection of fancy <laughs> restaurant eatings from my twenties. Right. Sometimes. <laughs> um, sometimes. But but there is absolutely love that comes through in food. And so if you approach that Wednesday night 25-minute harried meal and you come from a place of love, that's gonna affect the end result. It's not gonna make it fancier, it's not gonna make it sexier or whatever, but it is going to come across in the flavor, in the mood, in all of that. So there is definitely, as you, as you pointed out, there's definitely magic to home cooking. There is. And I think there might even be something unexplainable, something quantum that's happening when we put love into what we're cooking that really does change that food for the better. Mm -hmm. How do you... How do you help people get into the kitchen? You know, my husband and I talk a lot about this. We're, we cook all of our meals. We usually eat two meals a day, every day. And we do a lot of prepping ahead. And I think we talked about this when you interviewed me. Uh, we do a lot of, we'll cook, you know, 10 pound batches of something and freeze it. But I'm really all about finding ways to make the kitchen more convenient for people. And I think we live in this society that really values convenience and values speed. And I want to give that to people and the nourishment of a home-cooked meal on all those different levels, both at a nutrient level and at a love level. And so I'm, I'm curious if you have any specific tricks for helping people embrace simplicity of cooking on a weeknight or something that makes getting into the kitchen a little bit easier, whatever that is. Yeah, I have a few. The first thing is to, to know yourself and know your style. So if you are someone who likes to prep ahead, who is good with spending two hours or whatever it is on a Sunday, getting yourself ready for the week, and that's going to work for you. And that is, that's going to be the thing that helps you by all means do it. If you are not that person, that's okay. You don't have to do that. I think people make the mistake of trying to shoehorn themselves into someone else's idea of how to make things convenient and it never works. I could so, not agree more. Yeah. So that's a big one. And, 
And another one is to figure out what your pain points are and work around them. And the example I always give is, you know, you have to chop an onion for just about every day. <laughs> like if you cook, you, you're chopping onions all the time. So if you hate to chop onions, buy them pre-chopped. Like find those things that annoy the crap out of you and don't do them. Take find them off your plate. Around. Take them off your plate. Absolutely. Get someone else in your house to do it if that's available to you. Buy it pre-done if that's available to you. Like it's to me, it is worth the extra money to do that because it's going to be the, you're ultimately going to save money in the end because you're going to order takeout less, you know, because they're going to be those nights where you're like, I just can't. But if the onions are pre-chopped and you're already partway there, you're much more likely to see it through. This is something spending a little bit more money to save a little bit of money in the long run is something that I think it can be embraced in a lot of different spaces of life. And cooking is certainly one of them. And the other thing is to make it easy make it easy on yourself. So I always tell people, you don't need fancy knives, but you need sharp knives. So something like that, like take care of your knives. Don't let them rattle around in a drawer, keep them in a block or hung up on a metal strip, keep them sharp. You don't have to sharpen them yourself, take them to Sears or whatever, or a hardware store. They will sharpen them for you. Do that a couple of times a year you know, hone your knife on a steel every couple of times, like these little things. I mean, how annoying is it to try and cook when your knives aren't sharp? So things like that, that you can do to make it easy on yourself. Don't clutter up your kitchen. You don't need a lot of, uh, you don't need a lot of stuff. You really don't. I mean, I've written multiple cookbooks and my apartment is tiny and my kitchen is a side of a postage stamp. So I don't have a lot of extraneous equipment. I have just what I need. Um, so forget what, you know, Giada has in her kitchen and I'm not picking on Giada, like whoever your, <laughs> whoever your Instagram star or whoever your person of choice is who you like to watch, forget what they have. Think about what you need and what you have space for and clear out everything else. Um, and make the experience as easy and as fun for yourself as possible. You know, I was raised by a single mother who worked full time and took care of my brother and me by herself. And she would come home from work. And my brother and I were kicked out of the kitchen for half an hour and she would turn on the music really loud and just cook and decompress. And that it was part of her nighttime routine and it gave her so much pleasure to do it. And it saved her money because she was cooking. And so I always think of that example in my head, like what's going to make it, what's going to make your cooking experience more pleasant for you, figure out what that is and get yourself there. And the same thing with shopping, like, again, like know yourself. If you're someone who's got to pick out your own produce, then don't try to order it in, go to the supermarket yourself. But if you're someone who, you know, that's not an issue, then order your groceries, like whatever you need to do to streamline, do it. I love that. And I love, I love the story that you told about your mother, because I think, I think when you start to build a relationship with cooking, there's this aspect where it becomes something that is it can be really enjoyable, especially if you find the loud music. Sometimes I like to listen to podcasts. If you find somebody in your household that you enjoy doing it with, or you enjoy that you get a little bit of time to yourself, whatever that is, I, I, I really like that, that piece of advice. I just, I think people, like I said, they try to shoehorn themselves into what they read in a magazine or what they saw on TV or whatever. And it's just, it's not necessarily going to be the thing that works for you. So just 
really take the time to think about what's going to make the experience more pleasant for you and do that. And definitely like stop thinking everything has to be photo worthy and everything has to be, you know, garnished and like just, I mean, I cook for a living and I guarantee you most of my meals would make you go, really? That's what you're, <laughs> that's what you're eating. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, unless we're eating my work product, it's really not fancy. I mean, my work product's not that fancy either, but you know what I mean. I, w- I actually want to talk about that. I'm kind of curious about your process as a recipe developer, because I think that that gives people some clues about what it means to both to read a recipe and to develop the intuition to develop your own recipes in, in the kitchen. So the my process is, so usually when I say I'm developing recipes for a magazine, usually they'll come to me with a story idea and a number of recipes. You know, we're, we're recently, I did a story about burger salads for clean eating magazine. And they said, okay, I really liked do- that one. Oh, thank you. They're like, we want to do burger salads. We need six recipes. You know, we want to mix up the proteins go. So I went away and I came up with, it was six recipes. I came up with, you know, 10 or 12 or 14 ideas that I then brought back to them. And then they chose some, they changed some around. We have this sort of process where we figure out what, what those recipes are generally going to be. And then I go away and I develop them and to develop them. Um, depending on what the recipe is, I like to write the recipe down first, Uh, you know, it's just like a draft. And then as I, as I go, I'll change it. So sometimes I'll change it because I'm looking at the food and I'm like, this isn't, this is the wrong seasoning or it's the wrong amount, or I need more of this or more of that. Sometimes, um, if it's something I can taste as I go, then I adjust it. I'll taste as I go and I'll adjust it that way. If it's something like a baking recipe, then I have to sort of make my best guess and bake it. And then it comes out one way or another. And I've done it long enough that I know like how much leavening sure. something needs or what kind of leavening or whatever, but which isn't to say I get it right on the first try. Cause I usually don't, but, um, it's usually close. So if it's something like salad dressing that can be adjusted as you go, then great. If it's something like a, you know, a brownie recipe that you kind of bake it and hope for the best, then it often requires several rounds. I usually make things more than once, but it just depends on what it is. And then I, I get, get it to a place where I think it's pretty good. And then I try it out on my family. (laughs) Um, I don't, I don't work in a test kitchen. So in a test kitchen, you would present it to other people on the staff and they would pull it apart. But, um, I give it to my, my family and sometimes my friends and, um, hope that they are honest with, (laughs) with me. And then I take a picture Uh, usually for, usually magazines will shoot their own photos, but I will take a picture for them to use as a test shot. So they know generally what the food looks like. So they can, they can, um, give it to the food stylist. So the food stylist can say, what can I do to make this prettier? And the prop stylist can say, what plates should I use to make the food really shine? And then they shoot it. And then, you know, we go back and forth sometimes if they need to change it for nutrition reasons or whatever else. Um, they test it separately. Someone else tests it, which is great. And then it shows up wherever it shows up. I love that. I love hearing, (laughs) I love just uncovering the process. I'm curious in all of this recipe testing and development, we've talked so much about intuition. Has this changed your intuitive sense of cooking? One of the things I'm always urging people to do is to occasionally 
take the training wheels off, take the recipes off and just cook from cook from that intuitive space of just throwing something together with what's in your kitchen. And so I'm curious how that's developed for you. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I started in pastry, which is very scientific and very precise. And I, I'm a people pleaser. I'm a rule follower. So I really, I really gravitated toward that first. And if you ever talk to people who say, well, I don't really like to cook, but I like to bake. They usually have that kind of personality. Now I, now I, I cook much more than I bake and I do far less pastry than I used to. The nice thing is that the, the baking part, um, fostered a sense of precision in my cooking. So although I, I tend to, I tend to push back when people ask me to be precise about things like salt, because it's so subjective and even the type of salt that you use can change the flavor of the food. So I I try not to be precise with salt unless they require it. Um, but except for that, I, I am like, I mean, I'm so anal, like I'm in the kitchen. I'm literally, I've got a ruler. That's like my work ruler. My, my kid had my, had my ruler in her room. And I was like, that's my ruler. (laughs) 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 But I'm, I'm literally measuring when I tell you that something is a half inch tall or is, you know, two inches wide, like, Yes, I have st- sat there with a ruler and measured each one. I will I will weigh the burger patties to make sure that they're all the same weight. Like I am a crazy person <laughs> around that. But that's why my recipes work because I'm such a nutball. So, I don't even remember where I was going with this. How we develop intuition uh oh, intuition. in cooking. So, so Which, I think but I with, love I love this. I love this. <laughs> so, I think for people who people like me who are anal you know, learning to let go a little bit is okay, but you can, you can actually do both at the same time. So you can actually be really measured about the things that require that measure, but then you can let yourself go a little bit with other things. So like things like fresh herbs, you know, things like spices where, you know, a half teaspoon here or there, depending on the recipe may not make a huge difference. You can start there. You can start by doing things like replacing a vegetable or an ingredient one for one. So if a recipe calls for a quarter cup of chopped onions, you can try substituting a quarter cup of chopped um, shallots and you can just sort of baby step yourself there so that, that, you know, and if you do that enough, you just do those little one-to-one subs or those little one-to-one, you know, changes in the amount of things the more you do it, the more comfortable you get doing it. You may never be the kind of person who's like, I'm going to throw stuff in a skillet and see what happens. You may never be that person. And that's totally fine. I agree. And for people who want to go in the other direction, I recommend baking. So people who say I love to cook, but I hate to bake. I recommend baking, bake something simple, bake chocolate chip cookies off the back of the, the, the back of the bag, challenge yourself to follow the recipe. Exactly. You're not going to want to do it. You're going to want to change stuff. Just don't just once make it exactly as the package says, or what the recipe, whatever recipe you choose, make it exactly that way. And then while you're eating it, you can say, okay, so what would I have done differently here? And how do I get there? I feel like there's this deeper thread to what you just said about how people approach life and that it is Mm -hmm. always good to switch your perspective. If you really like to follow the rules go off the rails a little bit. If you love being off the rails, venture into the rules and and look back. And I just, I don't know, there's there's some greater life analogy in there. 
<laughs> but, you know, I try to do like when I post stuff on Instagram, like today I posted I, last night I was cooking and I was really just riffing. Like I knew generally what dish I was making, but I really wasn't being very, I wasn't developing it for work. I was just making dinner. So I really didn't pay that much attention to measuring things so much. So when I went to write it today, I, I kind of just, I just wrote it the way, you know, I kind of guessed how much of this or that I used. And I talked about what I substituted and that's kind of my way of encouraging people to, to just try stuff. Like, you know, sometimes I'll give you a recipe and it has everything down to the last measurement. Sometimes I'm going to tell you, you know what, I just threw all this stuff in and this is how it came out. And maybe next time I would have done this or that. And hopefully people feel like, hopefully it gives them the freedom to be able to the permission, I guess, to be able to do that themselves. Working as a butcher all of these years, I would often, you know, verbally relay recipes to people over the counter. And I think I really developed something that coincidentally enough, I call recipe ish. It's not it's just kind of a group of ingredients and cooking methods and the exact measurements and and quantitative data of that recipe are sort of up to the up to the user. And as a way of relaying, because we'd be on the counter and, it, well, I'm making this, this is what I have in my fridge, what would you do? And you just kind of throw something together for them on the fly. Do you find when you do that or when you've done that, that some people have been like, yeah, yeah, I get it. And other people are like, I can't do that. I need a recipe. Yes, there are absolutely two types of people. And and for that, I developed a Rolodex of books that I loved and publications that I loved, certain recipes for people to really work off of. I know that this is going to sound funny. This is very specific. But a lot of people come in at Easter wanting to try to cook a fresh ham. We're so used to cured hams or to buying like a honey-baked ham. And it's rare to cook a fresh ham. And there was a recipe in the New York Times, this maple glazed ham that I would refer people to and say, here are some places where you could sub out, but here's a really beautiful base for how to deal with a fresh ham. Hmm. So, yeah, but so interesting. There are definitely two types of people. I want to bring this in. I don't feel like we've gotten to fully talk about carnivore-ish. And I just want to, I really want to highlight this beautiful work before we, we close up together because I, you sent it along and I just loved it. I thought that it was so versatile. There were so many different types of meat, so many cuts, you know, as a butcher, that's something I really want to see. I want to see people use more of the whole animal. And I was really impressed at how that was expressed in this cookbook and, Thank you. and just the range within it. And so I want to talk first about just to tell us about the book and what it's meant to you as a passion project and anything that you want to share about it. Um, well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, we, we really, both of us wanted it to be a real celebration of good food. So a celebration of meat, definitely, but there's also, there's vegetables in the book and, you know, desserts and cocktails and all kinds of things. So we, we wanted it to be a book that people could really use in their everyday lives. Like there's nothing more frustrating than like shelling out 30 bucks for a book, a cookbook. And there's like two good recipes in it and the rest of it's kind of not that great. Um, so both of us really wanted this to be like a real, like a book you would, you would get 
just like stuff splattered all over, you know, yes. and maybe you would write in the margins, like stuff you did differently. Like I want it to be that kind of a book, like the one that kind that people really turn to for everything. And I mean, as a, as a passion project, I mean, what a privilege to be able to write the book that we wanted to write. The publisher victory belt was very supportive of us and, and also to be able to write a book with someone and someone I, I respect and love and admire so much. I mean, Ashley is just one of my favorite people. She's, she's brilliant and she's funny and she's, uh, she's so creative and, you know, she and I are also very different in a lot of ways. Like we have different tastes in a lot of things. And so it was just, I mean, even just like putting together the list of recipes, it was so much fun to do that and to, to kind of each share, you know, we come from very, we have very different backgrounds. Her, um, uh, you know, like her, from her familial background is different from mine. So it was just so nice to be able to, um, to collaborate in that way and to really celebrate each other's styles. And so, yeah, it was, you know, it was such a fun thing to do. And I, I hope, you know, we were talking about love and food. Like I hope the fun comes across in the book and the love comes across in the book. Cause it really was like such a joy to do. And it was, we wrote it in the winter of 2021, which was so dark and bleak you know, like everybody was like locked down and it was just like cold winter and just, it was such a hard time. So it was like doubly, you know, lovely to have such a nice project to like tuck into. So, yeah, I, I mean, I really hope that people find it very useful and, and a book that they will sort of hang on to for years and, and really hopefully enjoy. I love that. And and I do think that it is, you said something so beautiful, the kind of cookbook that you write in the margins of. That is just a really special, I, I don't have very many of them, but I have a couple and, and that is a really beautiful sentiment. I think also though, this is also a resource. It's not just a cookbook because there is a whole, I'm going to call it an appendix at the front that really details a lot about sourcing meat and about budgeting for meat and talking to your butcher and sort of unearthing some myths around various proteins, whether it's what you might be looking for in a chicken or in eggs. And so there, there are also a, a lot of resources there. And I, I want to highlight that and see if there's anything that you want to add in that category. Thank you. Um, yeah, that was so the getting to know your proteins section where we interviewed, we interviewed experts in all the different types of um, animal proteins that we cover. I mean, it was really, really fun to do and really interesting. I learned a ton. I mean, I thought I knew stuff like, and those conversations were just a joy. Like I, I interviewed um, the fishmonger at the fish place in my neighborhood that I go to so often that if I, if I'm not there for like a week, they're like, where you been? You know, <laughs> that's beautiful. I love so that. I interviewed like the guy who owns that place and, and, and just everybody that we talked to for the book was so generous with their time and with their wisdom and knowledge. And I really, I mean, like I said, I learned a lot. So I really, I think there's a lot of information in there that will help people as they shop and as they cook which is great because, you know, animal protein, you know, to acknowledge it, it can be expensive and it can go wrong. Like if you really, if you don't know what you're doing, it really can go wrong. So I talked to, I had a conversation with a friend a couple of years ago. He was saying to me, like, 
not buying expensive meat out anymore because no matter what type of steak I buy, no matter what, how expensive or cheap it is, whenever I cook it, it's tough. And I was like, okay, <laughs> okay, let's break this down. And mm-hmm. it turned out he was cutting it. He was cutting it with the grain. There you he go. Didn't know. He didn't know about cutting across the grain. So mm. I was like, this is, to me, this is like such, it's such basic information. But if you don't know it, you don't know it. So, you know, and a section like. I think we're a little disconnected from cooking meat. Uh, you know, a lot of, uh, with the decline in red meat eating that's happened in the last 30 years, some of us didn't grow up eating meat or grow up with parents that cooked red meat. There's been a gap in that transmission of knowledge. Mm-hmm, definitely. So yeah, I think, I, I hope that people will take the time to go through or even just refer to that, re, you know, that section that you're talking about, because there's a lot of great stuff in there, definitely about budget, you know, how to, how to save money on animal protein, which is especially right now in time of inflation, no small thing. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? I know that we've talked about this, but I think that this is an important conversation to have because of where we are with red meat and bacon and even chicken. And I, I think that costs will only rise. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, that's how for listeners, like that's how we met. Um, I had the privilege of interviewing you for a story I worked on, which I don't think has come out yet, um, about how to save money on meat. And it's definitely top of mind for all of us. I mean, unless you have, you know, zillions of dollars of, you know, disposable income, which if you do, good for you, but um, but I don't. So we're all struggling with this question, like what to do with rising costs. And there are absolutely really good ways to save money on meat where it doesn't feel like sacrifice, where you can, you can still, you know, a lot of the advice out there is eat less meat. But, you know, if you're someone like me who doesn't eat legumes, like where are you supposed to get protein from? So there's definitely, there's tons of ways to save money. There's, you know, buying the, the sort of lesser, less popular cuts and the cheaper cuts, um, which you and I talked about extensively. Yeah getting rid of this idea that you only braise in the winter, you know, you wouldn't think twice about having a pulled pork taco in the no. summer. So why not make pulled pork for dinner? Yes. This is, I mean, this is my biggest staple is braised meat. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's, it has a lot of nutrition to confer because it has that methionine Absolutely. to glycine ratio because it's collagen rich as opposed Absolutely. to just being lean muscle meat. Eating canned things like tinned seafood, um, going to your fishmonger or the fish counter at your supermarket and asking for things that are less expensive, tell them what you like and ask for a cheaper substitute. Same with your butcher. Absolutely. Um, things like mussels. People think mussels are so fancy. You go to a French restaurant and you get mussels and they're so expensive. Mussels are like 89 cents a silo. I mean, you can feed a family of four, a solid meal of mussels and it will cost you less than $10. I'm not kidding. Like, a wonderful source of some trace minerals that you don't get anywhere else. A really yes. good source of copper, of selenium. I think there's some vitamin K in there. I mean, just just a little nutritional powerhouse and cheap, cheap, cheap. Absolutely. Cheap and, and easy. Like it is almost impossible to mess up muscles. Like even overcooked, even if you overcook them, it's not like overcooking meat. Like they won't be as good, like the texture is affected, but it's still, they're still totally good and fine and edible. Um, so you really can't mess them up, throw muscles on the grill, like literally put them, put the muscles on the grill. 
They don't need any seasoning. It is a one ingredient recipe. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, they come with it's, their own salt. They're from yep. the ocean. They keep their they own salt nothing. inside of they them. Need, they need nothing. So, so there's lots of things like that that you can do to save money. Um, buying a whole chicken, and people are so resistant to that. But if you love, I mean, you love rotisserie chicken, right? Everybody loves that. Cooking a whole chicken is, it's really easy. You know, you kind of throw it in the oven and you're done. Um, I like to dry brine chicken. I think it's what makes it, you know, makes the skin really crisp and it tastes really good. So all you do is just like pat it dry, cover it with salt, like more salt than you think you need. Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely more salt than you think. And put it in the fridge and either leave it there all uncovered, leave it there all day. Or if you have overnight, leave it there older overnight. And then when you're ready to cook it, do whatever it is you were going to do with it. So don't, don't rinse it. Don't wipe the salt off, put the butter or the oil or whatever you were going to put on it, season it, throw it in the oven. Delicious. And it's ready in like an hour and 15 minutes. Um, and you don't have to touch it. Um, but whole chicken, I mean, if you're buying boneless, skinless chicken breasts, you're spending a lot of money and that's fine, but you don't have to spend that money or chicken thighs. You're missing out on some of the, some of the fat. And I think that yeah. that's another piece that you guys deal with beautifully in the book is the incorporation of all these healthy fats, getting away from seed oils and getting more into animal fats and things like avocado and coconut oil. Oh yeah. There's no, there are no seed oils in the book at all. It's amazing. And there's no, there's no, I want to say there's no grain, except I think there's one recipe that has gluten-free oats in it, but 125 recipes, I think 124 of them are free of grains. But yeah, there's tons of ways to save money on meat and it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't. And you know, the thing I learned from the story that I wrote for Food Network from talking to you and the other butchers I talked to is every single one said the same thing. Every single one said, ask us questions. Yes. So even if your butcher seems intimidating, most likely they will answer. They want to answer your questions. So don't be shy about, about asking. And what's the worst that could happen? I mean, what if the butcher is mean to you? So what, you know, yeah, you just so have what? to let that go. Just, and I know just move on. Yeah. As a butcher, I, I'm a nervous customer. And so as a butcher, I really wanted to dispel any customers that we were a space where you can ask any question. There are no dumb questions. There are just, there's just information and curiosity. And, and it's fine to ask. It's fine to ask how to save money. Yes, that is a is. legitimate question. Yes. So ask it, ask what you can do to save money. Tell them what your budget is and yes. they will help you get something that fits within your budget. Absolutely. We encourage all of our customers to come in with a budget, to have an idea of what they want to spend and to let us know because we can really help you as a butcher. We want to help you. We're here. We want to help you fit within your budget. And not only that, but when you come in and you ask us what cuts are cheaper, generally those are cuts that we want to move and we want to sell and we want to introduce you to. And as a whole animal butcher, I know that this really helps us move the whole animal because it is not just strips and ribeyes. There are all these other underrated cuts that I know that you're going to love. And it, I mean, it's just an, it's just a question away. And then the other thing is organ meats, which I would be remiss if I did not mention, you know, for nutrient sake and also to save money, you know, organ meats are very inexpensive. They're loaded with nutrients and you can eat them on their own or you can incorporate them into other foods. There is yes. no shame in doing nope. that. You can hide you can them. 
Absolutely. I do it all the time. I keep, I keep a liver, a beef liver in my freezer and I use my microplane zester and I will just zest a little bit of frozen liver. And it's literally anytime I'm cooking with any sort of ground meat, it gets a little bit of liver in there. You get the nutrients, it stretches the meat and you really do not taste it. So my kid eats it like it's fine. We we blitz them together. Like I'll blitz together some liver, some heart, some kidney. We often have spleens around here. I'll mix species in there. There'll be goose liver and chicken liver and beef liver, kidneys, rooster testicles, whole thing, blitz it together. And then I'll shave it off with a mandolin, which I think, I mean, we're just same, same situation, different methods. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, well, you mentioned heart. I mean, if, if you're someone who's like curious about organ meats, but you're kind of like, I don't know if I can go there. Heart is a great place to start because along with being an organ, it's also a muscle. So it, it's similar to the muscle meat that you're used to. So you can and take- And it has CoQ10, the only yeah. place that you can really find CoQ10. It's really good. There, we have a heart recipe in the in carnivoreish that I developed. I had never cooked heart before. I went. It's a. It's based on a Peruvian street food dish um, called anchocuchos, and I went to a Peruvian like this tiny little like takeout Peruvian place deep in the you know wilds of Brooklyn, and um, I ordered the dish, and they kind of were like, "Who are you?" Because it's all it's all like people in the neighborhood who eat there. But they, they gave it to me and the, the people were like, well, you know, and I loved it. I couldn't believe how much I loved it. So I went home and I, I got a heart from the butcher and I asked him how to clean it. And he showed me exactly how to clean because it has like some valves and stuff yeah, on it. He taught me, he just, he spent like five minutes with me and taught me what to do and showed me some stuff. And he was super nice about it. And I went home and I played around with it and I experimented and and then I cut it up and I skewered it and grilled it. And it was amazing. So that's a great place to start. If I didn't tell you it was heart, you might, you might not have guessed. You might have just thought it was beef because it really doesn't. It's really, really similar to steak. It is. So that's and a nice thing to start with. To me, it tastes rich. Like it tastes, mm-hmm. it has a rich flavor that is just, it's just redolent of something else. And I think that it's so worth exploration. Mm-hmm, I think all of that is incredible advice. I want to see if there's anything that we missed that you want to share. This is really important to me to ask every guest. And I don't know if there's just anything lingering that you want to talk about. No, oh, it's so funny. It's so foreign to me to be the interviewee because so <laughs> yeah, you're, it actually made me really nervous. I was like, this woman knows what she's doing. I'm, I'm nervous to put myself out there in front of her. No, you were great. I was like sitting on my hands, not to turn the questions around on you. Cause that's what I, that's what I often do when people try to ask me stuff. I'm like, well, what about you? And, you know, but no, I mean, I think you were very thorough. So I, I really, I am so grateful to you for the opportunity to come and talk to you. I, I, this, the cookbook just it astounded me, but more than that was kind of looking over your body of work as a whole and just seeing all these beautiful threads of levity and accessibility and all the things that I really want to see in recipes that I, I don't often find. And so I just think that you have a gift 
to give the world. And I really think that you're bridging a conversation in the, the mainstream food journalism that desperately needs to happen. And so I, I'm really amazed and just honored to have you on. I have, I have one last question that I like to ask every guest. And what does it mean for you to lay the groundwork? So much of this podcast has been about how we lay the groundwork either for ourselves and our health or for generations to come, you know, both in a microcosm and in a macrocosm. And so just endlessly curious to, to hear everyone's answer. So for me, it's, it's two things. In the macro sense, to me, laying the groundwork is doing the work to hopefully help people to see the joy in cooking and the fun and the, the nourishment, both literally and figuratively. And to, just as we were talking about, like getting them to follow their intuition and to honor their, their own particular approach and their own particular culture and their own food ways. And, um, to feel really good about, to feel really good about food at every stage, shopping for it, choosing it, cooking it, eating it, sharing it with their friends and family and loved ones, um, and then feeling good themselves from the good health that comes from what they've made. Um, that, so that to me is like laying the groundwork, doing my work to help people get there. Um, and then personally along the same vein is, um, laying the groundwork, um, for my family. Um, just, uh, I'm not a, not a perfect wife. I'm not a perfect mother by any stretch, but just doing the best I can every day to, uh, to set an example for my daughter to, um, to, to be, to show up as my most open and loving self as much as possible and to be open and generous with them, um, as much as I can to give them as much as I can so that they can be their happiest and most fulfilled selves and that we as a family can be that way together. What beautiful answers. I, it was just perfect. Um, where can people find you and where can people find carnivore-ish? So you can find carnivore-ish wherever you like to buy books. Um, it's on all the major websites. Um, and if you want to support your local bookshop bookstore, you can go on bookshop.org. It's up there. It's in a lot of stores as well. If you shop, you know, brick and mortar stores, I, I anecdotally have seen it in a few bookstores. It's sometimes under health and wellness, which I love. I love that So if too. you don't see it under cookbooks, you can look under health and wellness. You can also call your bookstore. I love calling bookstores and asking for titles that I want to see. Absolutely. I think that helps meteor titles find their way into bookstores as well. Without a doubt, without a doubt, it's really helpful. So anywhere it's convenient for you to buy books, get one for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also you can, if you want Ashley or me to, um, to sign it for you, um, you can DM either one of us and we can uh, work that out. So um, that's another option if you want to give it as a gift for somebody or you want that for yourself. And you can find me, uh, you can find me on Instagram. That's the easiest place. My Instagram handle is cookiepie0402. Uh, cookiepie is what my mother used to call me. And 0402 is a date that's important to me. So mm. that's where you can find me. You can also find Ashley at the Muscle Maven 
also on Instagram. And you can reach out to either one of us with questions about the book or anything like that. If you have the book, if you would rate and review it, that makes a huge difference to us. Um, mm. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll have all the, we'll have links to all of that in the show notes as well so that people can easily find you. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for coming on. It was such an honor to, and, and nerve wracking to interview an interviewer. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you so much for, for coming on. And we're just grateful to have you. And I can't wait for everyone to read Carnivorish. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.